1: I am the kind of person who hangs on to things for a very long time. I'm not interested in upgrading or replacing things unless it's absolutely necessary. I have never sold one of my used cars, I just drive them until they're dead. This suit that I'm wearing right now, for example, was the first suit I purchased as an adult after college, it is almost 30 years old. Another example would be my computer. For a few years now, when I ask my laptop to do certain things, it protests. I have had pending updates for years that I ignore because I've tried before and my computer rejects the updates. Although less frequent these days than a couple years ago, I do have the occasional Zoom meeting, in which case I need to bring home the church laptop because my laptop is so old they didn't have built-in cameras back then, And at some point in the last year or two, it has since rejected any external camera. The biggest scare was over Thanksgiving week on travels when I brought my laptop for the first time in about a year or two on my travels and plugged it in and it wouldn't turn on. Now, for those of you who work on your laptops and your life and all of your sermons, for example, are on your computer, you know how scary that is. Fortunately, it works when I'm back home in the docking station, but simply won't turn on when I plug it in. Realized after doing some quick Googling of my old emails that my laptop is more than 10 years old, which in IT terms is archaic. So I decided last week to take advantage of some sales that center around Thanksgiving every year, purchased a new laptop. Now, most of you have probably bought a laptop sometime in your lifetime, and you know that when you go online, there are a variety of choices. There are different brands, even different colors, different screen sizes, miscellaneous bells and whistles. But when it comes to being an actual computer, there are fundamental, non-negotiable basics that are necessary to be an actual laptop regardless of the extras. A keyboard, a screen, a motherboard, RAM, a hard drive. And just like the elder in the church, there will be differences from person to person, ethnicity, age, maturity, marital status, personality, even occupation. And these are all wonderful differences that God has blessed the church with. But... Aside from those differences, there are fundamental, non-negotiable basics that are necessary to be an actual elder according to the Scriptures, regardless of all the extras. Let's take a look at those in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. We find ourselves in week two of a series called God's Man for the Church as we unpack Paul's teaching on the qualifications and calling of an elder in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 3, I'll read the whole passage that will take us a few weeks to get through, but for context, verses 1 through 7. Paul writes to Timothy, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, It is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household... How will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. For this whole passage, we have two points in our outline, two qualifications of the biblical church elder. Last week we saw in verse 1 the calling And in verses 2 through 7, we will see the character, which will take us more than one Sunday to unpack. I was hoping to get through verses 2 and 3 today. I will get through verse 2. Having established what being an overseer involves, we now move on to the spiritual requirements of the character of the elder or the man who seeks to be an elder. This all ties into what we saw last week regarding the work of an elder. The function or role of the overseer is such that only one who is truly called, gifted, and enabled by God will do the work properly, meaning biblically. He is not someone, he is not to be someone rather, who seeks out the office for the title, the accolades, or whatever else his particular church might lavish upon the elders by way of earthly reward, recognition, and honor. Although the Scriptures instruct that respect and honor be given to the elders, these are not to be the motivation to become an elder. Now, there are many men and women in the position of elder in churches all across the globe that are not fit for the role. And although the lack of being qualified for the office of overseer can involve numerous things, the first line of defense is the list we are about to unpack in verses 2 through 7. Of 1 Timothy 3. All of it being introduced by the word then or therefore in the ESV, this shows us that the qualifications listed are a consequent necessity due to the nature of the task. To put it another way, you cannot simply jump to verses 2 through 7 to evaluate an elder or potential elder without the mountainous truths of verse 1. But having unpacked that last week, let's move on to this list of spiritual qualifications. And our focus this morning and following mornings is to explain to you what the elder must be, not what he should look like to you, but what he should authentically be before the Lord. As I have mentioned already several times in this study, there are many individuals who are elders, who should not be. They lack the qualifications, and that lack of qualification is evident to any observer who is using the Bible as the standard. Not church philosophy, not the bylaws of any particular church, but the Bible itself. However, there are many individuals who should not be elders, and their status of being unqualified for the office is unobservable by anyone in the church. They do not fulfill the list of spiritual characteristics we will see, but they do outwardly play the part in front of others. It is quite possible that their children, their spouse, their family members, their inner circle, see that they are not qualified but because of manipulation or fear of being embarrassed that even his family, who observe the lack of qualification, will not speak up. Thus, much of this relies on the individual to so love God and the church that he is willing to step down if he finds himself to be unfit for the task or to stop the process of pursuing eldership. That being said, you will see that most of the attributes on this list are observable. They all impact others. But we must go beyond what other people observe, and in Timothy's context, specifically the false teachers that are accusing the church and trying to put down the gospel, that we must look at the heart and understand that what is observable, which is everything in this list, must flow out of a true heart of worship. Now, as we go through this list, you will see that these are all qualities that every Christian should have. In other words, they are all commanded elsewhere in the New Testament of all believers in some form or another. The only exception being able to teach Although even that one is something as far as evangelism and defending the faith is concerned is also commanded of all Christians. So on the, on the one hand, there is a higher expectation of the elder to have these qualities. Thus, the phrase that I mentioned last week, and you might have heard elsewhere, For elders, there is a same standard, but a higher accountability. Same standard meaning that elders are commanded to have the same attributes as all believers are commanded to have. The standard we will see is no higher than the standard the Scriptures set forth for all Christians. And frankly, in reality... It is the same standard for unbelievers as well, since it is the failure to be in Christ and subsequently manifest these characteristics that the unbeliever is condemned. On the other hand, but in the same vein, you must be aware that listing these qualities as those of an elder does not mean you can disregard this list for yourself, because again, they are commanded of you, just not in this passage. In other words, don't check out like you do at a meeting when you hear a list of requirements for a job or a degree that you have no interest in. This is still for you. But again, this passage is for elders or those desiring to be elders, so that will be my focus this morning. For those of you whom this does not apply, the description of each of these qualities that you are also again commanded to have should prove helpful in your walk. Well, let's jump right in. In verse 2, the first qualification of the elder or potential elder is that he must be above reproach. Above reproach. Back when I was in college, shortly before I bought this suit, (laughs) this was one of the most used phrases that I heard used among believers. Uh, It was a, a popular phrase to help other believers think through how they should behave. It was an Overarching, all encompassing aspect of wanting to be above reproach in all parts of the Christian walk. Don't use that kind of language. You want to be above reproach. Don't be impure with your boyfriend. You want to be above reproach. I wouldn't go to that party. You want to be above reproach. And it is a phrase that can be used of any aspect of life. And it can be argued that Paul is setting forth this requirement as a basic characteristic that is then defined by all the others in this list. In other words, the elder is to be above reproach in being the husband of one wife, in being temperate, prudent, respectable, and all of the rest. Now, to understand what this all-embracing qualification means, let's start with the basic definition. Above reproach is one word in the Greek... And it means not able to be taken hold of. And that's in the sense of being criticized or being attacked. It means that in the outworking of his Christian faith, the elder cannot be justifiably and biblically accused of violating the call to Christian character and specifically the characteristics of 1 Timothy chapter 3. It is not that an overseer is to be sinless. That would be impossible. If you are at a church where the elders claim to be sinless, leave the church. But there is an emphasis on a character whose personal reputation will encourage the church as well as strengthen its testimony with the world. Now, in Timothy's context, the elders of the Ephesian church were to live in such a way that the false teachers' attempts to discredit the gospel, would fail. So as they try to drag down the reputation of the church, the leaders of the church would show by their lives that they were not what the false teachers claim. They were above reproach. And when we understand that this is ultimately the clear testimony of the gospel that is at stake, we see why Paul says that the overseer must be above reproach This is not an option. It is a necessary requirement of the elder. And the 14 following characteristics then must be exemplified in the elder's life such that he is above reproach in all of them. And when it comes to the attacks from those who are enemies of the gospel and the church, there can be no defect in the elder's character or conduct which can be used as a weapon against him. There's simply nothing there to exploit. Now, the reality is that elders are attacked, they are criticized, they are accused all the time. Unfortunately, it is most often from within the church these days than from outside of it. And this is part of being a leader in any field. But that kind of accusation is not what this is talking about. This is not talking about false accusations or unjustified criticisms. Since the standard is perfection, there is always room to point out where an elder is not being perfect. And Most criticisms are subjective and more about people's unbiblical or unrealistic expectations not being met often their feelings being hurt. It would be utterly impossible for anyone to appease everyone's personal feelings, desires, and whims. And so, praise God, we have an objective truth and standard. It is that objective standard that is the pattern that devi- defines what is above reproach and what is not. So what Paul is talking about here. Is being above reproach when it comes to the clear requirements of God, not so much the desires of the church, if they do not align with what God calls the man to do. It is very easy, though, to take that objective standard and accuse an elder of failing because he is not, for example, perfectly loving. That's always the easy one because of the call to love in the Scriptures. People are smart enough to know that their feelings do not justify criticism and gossip, so they try to connect it to the Scriptures by saying, well, he doesn't love me. As believers, we must have high expectations of our elders in this regard. But we must be careful we do not twist the Scriptures in our accusations or twist the Scriptures to meet our felt needs. The last thing you want the leaders of your church to do is to capitulate to feelings and movements, the culture and society. Because I would say about half of you left your last church because your last elders did exactly that. And it's not just their person or their personality. The gospel is trampled on if it's even there in the first place to be trampled on at all. Well, the next characteristic of the elder is that he is to be the husband of one wife. This literally means a man of one woman, or a one-woman man, or as it's translated here, a husband of one wife. It's very important to understand, because we're talking about, remember, what it can be externally seen, but that must reflect the heart. So the emphasis here is on marital faithfulness, so more than marital status. This is about moral and sexual behavior. We know that a man can be married, yet still be sexually immoral. One way to interpret husband of one wife is to say that he is only to have one wife at a time. But we must then take into account what it means to be married according to 1 Corinthians 6.16, where Paul explains that when a man is intimate with a woman, when a man has sex with a woman, and his example is even a prostitute, he says the two become one flesh. It is a form of union that is used in Scripture to describe only marriage. And so, Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 6, that when you commit adultery or when you even sleep with a prostitute, there is a form of spiritual marriage there. And so we broaden this understanding of being a one-woman man to what they think about and what they do even if they are married. Back in 1 Timothy, it is clear that Paul is saying there can be no form of polygamy legally, but also no form of polygamy in the sexual and emotional sense. To be clear, the elder is not to sin in this way, even in his mind. Now we need to take this phrase at face value, but we also need to understand that other teachings of the New Testament inform this requirement. Again, it's not just okay that the man is married to one person and has been their whole life. See, I have the marriage certificate here, and then he's sleeping around or he's doing ridiculous things or they haven't slept in the same room for years because they just want to keep up the image, but they really are emotionally separated and divorced. We'll see that more clearly in following uh, characteristics in the following weeks. We need to understand That when it says that the elder is to be husband of one wife, there are other New Testament teachings that explain what this means. Teachings such as the guidelines for biblical divorce. Teachings on the sin of sexual immorality in the form of lust, even if it's just in his own mind. So going back to the concept of same standard, higher accountability, There are issues within the realm of sexual immorality and lust that a Christian would not be church-disciplined for, but would be disqualifying for the elder. Now, a couple minor points to bring up here before we move on. We've seen this already, but in a secondary kind of peripheral way, this also shows us that only men are to be elders, As Paul does not say, the elder is to have only one spouse, nor does he say he is to be the husband of one wife or she is to be the wife of one husband. It particularly assumes that you understand the husband of one wife because only men can be elders. Secondly, and this is very important, and it goes back to the same understanding that we saw A few weeks ago, uh, when we saw that the passage that said the woman will be preserved through the bearing of children, that does not apply specifically to every individual. It's talking about it in general. And so to here, it does not mean that a single man cannot be an elder. It does not mean that an elder must be married. It means if they are married, that they are married and faithful to that one woman, and if they are single, they are pure in their thoughts, in their activities with women, and in what they look at on the internet, the husband of one wife. The next three qualities are temperate, prudent, and respectable. There are those who have said that these three words in the Greek are so similar that they are hardly distinguishable from one another, especially in the English. However, they do each have a different nuance. They are all related, and they all have to do with the mind. Let's look at the first of these three, temperate. Your ESV says sober-minded. King James says vigilant. The Greek word has all of those meanings. It can be sober, sober sober-minded, clear-headed, self-controlled is a good one, although we'll see that more in prudent, which is the next characteristic. Now, when you talk about sober, you understand naturally, or you can guess that this was a word that originally referred to being sober in relation to alcohol, but like in the English... It can refer to the ideas of self-controlled and clear-headed outside of any physical connection to alcohol, which is, of course, the meaning here. So this has the idea of having sound judgment, being in such a frame of mind that you can commit to a goal and be able to follow it through to the end. And although this is not talking about the opposite of being physically drunk, this is not talking about being physically sober, inebriation does serve as a good contrast to what we are talking about here. All you need to do is think of everything someone is when they are drunk physically, and the elder is to be the polar opposite when it comes to being temperate. Now, most of you have the unfortunate knowledge that there are different kinds of drunks. There are the super, I love you, man, drunks. And then there are the drunks who just want to pick a fight with everyone. But all of them exhibit behavior that is contrary to being temperate. So thinking of the drunk individual, when talking about this characteristic, the elder, for example, is not to be easily angered or aggressive He is not to be overly emotional, whether in his irrational sadness or even in his uncontrolled excitement. The temperate individual is not unpredictable in that he is not super friendly one minute and then irresponsibly angry the next. You've heard of the police officers. I don't know if they still do this. But traditionally, they have checked for insobriety by having the driver walk in a straight line or put their arms out and touch their nose. They do this because they know someone who is drunk cannot do this because their mind is not clear and thus their body cannot do what they think they're telling their body to do. A much greater problem than physical drunkenness is spiritual drunkenness a mind that is cloudy and lacks good judgment and results in poor decisions or ungodly behavior. This will result from not actively living out the Bible. This will result by being informed and letting your thoughts and behavior and mindset and worldview be uh, controlled or even have some modicum of control by the world, by society, by your unbelieving children, by your unbelieving spouse, by your unbelieving parents, your co-workers, whatever it is. To be temperate demands and requires that the elder and anyone else have their head in the Word and the Word in their head at all times. Being temperate, then, we can say, is having a clear biblical mind. Next, Paul says that the overseer is to be prudent. Again, this is closely related to temperate, and it is, in fact, a result of temperance. If being temperate is having a clear mind, then being prudent is having a controlled mind. In fact, the NIV and ESV translate this self-control. Sensible is another good English word, as being prudent means being thoughtful and controlled in behavior. And as with all the characteristics, prudent especially, involves control of one's mind and thought life. Now, obviously, there is a nuance here of sexual decency, Because of that, the bigger picture is that of a well-balanced mind leading to self-control in thought and deed in every area of life, not just sexual immorality. And you can see how this is related to temperate. Because when you have clarity of mind, then you will be able to have control of your mind. You can't have control, self-control if your mind is cloudy. As a believer... When you have control of your mind, then you can bring every thought into the mind of God as revealed in the Scriptures. To put it another way, being prudent means having the wisdom and discipline to filter all your thoughts through the lens of Scripture and then living that out. Now, all men, and I include unbelievers in this, can be prudent Self controlled at times. But to be like this always and in every aspect of life is made possible only by faith in Jesus Christ and the enabling of the Holy Spirit, which is why all believers can be prudent. Now, the quality of being prudent is more than having clarity during the occasional interaction with others, but an overall discipline to one's priorities such that the elders' priorities will line up with God's priorities. Again, he is God's man for the church. I think we all would agree, if you give some thought to it, that control of the mind is harder to achieve than external legalism. It is much easier to be told to do something physically and then do it. Clean the pews, move the chairs, encourage someone in the church, read your Bible. It is much harder to clean the pews as an act of worship, to encourage someone you don't like because you have chosen to love them, to read your Bible because you have developed a hunger for the Word. And this is why there is such a clear distinction and calling for the elder. The man who habitually puts the world and worldly pursuits first is not fit to be an elder. Rest is necessary. Entertainment is fine. The success and education of children are noble pursuits. But when any of those overtake a man's commitment to God and his church, that man is not fit to be an elder. There must be a control of his mind and subsequent priorities and his church then, or his behavior then, is to be under the control of God. There must be a control of his mind and subsequent priorities such that it is not he who is ultimately in control, but it is God. Next, Paul says... The elder is to be respectable. This word means orderly. It refers to a well ordered life, a disciplined life. He is proper in his demeanor, his life is organized and put together. He is disciplined in the things that a mature man of God should be disciplined in. In other words, this is not emphasizing the ability to be disciplined in things like making money or his job or working on his hobbies, but disciplined in the spiritual disciplines. Obviously, the man of God, all believers need to be faithful to their jobs, to their families. That's part of it. This also means being disciplined in the simple living of life. I like how one person put it, for the elder, when we're talking about being respectable, there should be no chaos in this person's life you look at their home and at their schedule, there should be no chaos. There should be discipline. It should be orderly. There should be no wondering what he's about or where he is or what he's doing. There's a part of this that also speaks of his outward appearance. He is not unkempt. There's a reason why someone who is slovenly dressed and unshaved is a cliched picture of someone whose life is in disorder. I get that it is trendy to look like that nowadays, but you understand what I mean. This is not about fashion, but it's because the man's life is so chaotic that he doesn't have time to find a clean shirt or tuck it in. This type of good behavior leads him to be respected by others, but we must be careful. The word is respectable not respected. Although one will lead to another among mature and educated company, this is not a call to capitulate to the culture so that whatever is the quality of the day in our society is pursued by the elder. Not only is that fruitless and godless, it is a never-ending pursuit because cultural shifts are never-ending." But even in this world of a disintegrating decorum and non-existent etiquette, a gentleman is still appreciated and respected. The elder is to be respectable. His life is in order. He is not frantically chasing a sense of normality or structure. And this is to be true in his behavior at church, but also behind closed doors. Respectable. As we move on, Paul says that the elder is to be hospitable. This is simply the heart of hospitality, being happy to welcome people into their homes. This is not an Airbnb type of situation, but giving people a place to stay while also caring for them. There are people who want a place to stay, and they prefer not to interact. And if that's the case, then the elder should still be hospitable in that manner. You have perhaps heard the phrase being a lover of strangers in relation to hospitality. They are one and the same because the Greek word here is a compound word of the Greek words for love and stranger, lover of strangers. The word for love there, and I'm just going to mention this because you're familiar with them, Again, a compound word is two or more words that become one word, like because, be, and cause. The first word in this compound word is phileo. It's a powerful form of love in the Bible, as in the title Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And the second word is xenos, which we have in the English word xenophobia. Xenophobia a fear or dislike of strangers or foreigners. In this case, a love of strangers. Hospitable. Now, this particular characteristic was especially important in Paul and Timothy's day and especially important for Christians back then. Accommodations for Christians, whether traveling for work or ministry, was almost non-existent. The Hilton and the Hyatt did not exist. Christians relied on other Christians to house them and take care of them in a foreign city. This was also the culture. So you could see how members of this newly founded religion of Christianity would be unwelcome in a Jew's home or a polytheist's home. Christians needed to have an open door policy and by every sense of what we know that phrase means because there was no warning. There's no email, there's no planning, there are no phone calls. Your only warning that you're about to have a house guest for days, if not weeks, sounded like this. That was it. Ready and willing, hospitable. And this would also apply to local Christians who were were in need and not just out-of-towners for whatever reason. Maybe they're kicked out of their home or disowned because they decided to follow Jesus Christ. Now, when we say that these characteristics that we are looking at are commanded of all Christians, it is easy to think, well, this one isn't. Someone's visiting from out of town looking for a place to stay. Well, call the Chens, call the Chens. They should do it. Visiting missionary, well, the pastor should take them out, house them. But this is for everyone. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12, verses 10 through 13. Romans 12, verses 10 through 13. And every time we see hospitality or hospitable, it is that same word, lover of strangers. He says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. And here it is, verse 13, Romans 12 contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Let me read for you Hebrews 13.2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Hear that, Chris? Kwaku could have been an angel. Just kidding. Most of you don't know who I'm talking about. We see this actually happening in the Old Testament, where it was, we know they were angels. They didn't know that angels were coming. And by killing the calf or whatever and feeding these people, they were entertaining angels. 1 Peter 4 9, be hospitable to one another without complaint. This one is a good reminder that our hearts should do this out of love not begrudgingly, not getting annoyed with the guests, not counting the days until they leave. Being hospitable is a privilege that starts with understanding that your home was a gift from God to be used by God, not to mention your time, your resources, your beds, your food. As important as it is for all Christians to have this attitude, it is imperative for the overseer Things have changed a lot. We have our video doorbells. We have money for hotels. We have DoorDash. We have lost the neighborly kindness and hospitable gestures of just a generation ago. And as wrong as it is for Christians to behave this way, it is much worse for the ones seeking the office of overseer. Naturally, we need to be people who welcome with open arms. We do so not to hurt our other priorities. You don't not go to church because someone showed up or neglect your children or make them starve, things like that. But truth be told, when is that really going to happen? I think about the Albanians. They were very hospitable. They said that was one of their number one attributes. They could have a family of five from out of town just show up at their door. And the tradition was to welcome them, give them a snack and some raki, which is uh, their national drink. It's like vodka to the Russians, I'd imagine. It's often a homebrew, a strong alcohol. And you sit there, until they leave, if that's hours, if that's days. At the time, I was affiliated uh, with one of the largest schools, most prominent schools for English and computers that was founded by a missionary, our team leader. And it got to the point where more Albanians were in control and in charge, and so we had an Albanian president of the Lincoln Center. Uh, This school had gained such a reputation that the Ministry of Education dedicated a part of their weekly meetings to how can we emulate what the Lincoln Center has done in the rest of the nation. Christmas party started 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour. as a no-show. This is your first year as president. This is bad. Turns out she missed the whole Christmas party because right as she was leaving and dressed for the party, some relatives showed up, and she needed to stay with them. Rude to even mention I have somewhere to go. That, perhaps not in its details, because we do need to go to work, for example, take the kids to school, but that is the mentality we are to have, to not just have an open-door policy, but to joyfully do so speaking of things that are imperative for the elder, we now come to the qualification that is not required of all believers and that is able to teach. Naturally, this means able to teach God's Word. Part of the calling of someone to the office of overseer is a giftedness in teaching, keeping in mind that this gift, as with all spiritual gifts, can be developed, honed, and matured. This begins with the knowledge of the Scriptures and ends with the ability to impart that knowledge to others. And even in this, we see that there's a process of development there. Someone does not get saved or called to be an elder and immediately knows the Scriptures in their entirety. There must be a pursuit of that. There must be study of that. When it comes to teaching the Bible as an elder, there is much more than knowledge and skill. There must be humility Holiness and hunger. Humility. Humility before God and His Word. The Christian, elder or not, who gets more ar- arrogant the more he studies the Word, is either not truly comprehending the Word or is not a Christian. Holiness. Not just seeking to make others obey the Word, but is obeying it himself and approaching the Holy Word with a holy reverence. Hunger. There must be a desire to learn and grow and not just learn so that they can teach. When it comes to teaching, I believe there is a natural desire in all men to tell other people what to do. And that desire can become dangerous and selfish with these three components of humility, holiness, and hunger the elder can teach faithfully and with confidence that he is doing so to the glory of the one whose truths he teaches. Able to teach. The skill in being able to impart God's word and explain it. That does not mean they're not boring. They can impart and explain the scriptures and the listener can be bored out of their mind but if the person has faithfully and accurately explained it he is able to teach now this same qualification is found in Titus in a twofold context exhort believers in sound doctrine which we assume this means but also refute those who contradict being able to teach is being about uh, being able to teach believers but also correct false teachers, and evangelize unbelievers. Now, I want to point out that it says that the elder is to be able to teach, not preach. There is a difference. And although when it comes to teaching or preaching the Word, there's naturally a lot of overlap, let me give you a very basic set of differences between teach and preach. And even as I say this, because I know a lot of people ask about this. I believe this was even asked recently in the small groups. As I explain this, I think you will naturally just go, oh, yeah, that makes sense, because you have sat in school and heard people teach you, and you're sitting right now hearing someone preach to you. To teach, in this context, means to explain and make clear the Scriptures. It often, not always, involves dialogue, questions, interruptions, Sir, can you clarify? Professor, what about this? Preaching, on the other hand, in the Greek is the word proclaim. It involves more of an invitation and exhortation. And unlike teaching, preaching is always a monologue. The preacher preaches and hopefully nobody interrupts for questions or comments. Teaching, then, is to impart knowledge and understanding. Preaching demands a response. And you can see how they overlap in that if it is the Word of God, then teaching should also have some sort of response. Because even though the teacher may not call you out with illustrations and practical application, you should take the Word home and respond to it. And of course, biblical preaching should also impart knowledge and understanding and explain the text. But the emphasis and primary goal of each one is clearly one or the other. Now, it is standard for elders, specifically pastors, to preach on Sunday mornings. So many elders are able to preach, but all elders should be able to to teach. And depending on the church and situation, they may not have opportunity to, but keep in mind this teaching is not merely in a classroom or a small group or congregational setting. This can be one-on-one discipleship. This can be casual conversation after church. This can be with a believer or an unbeliever. The elder cannot be someone who does not understand how to explain the gospel for example, or to give a defense of the faith. Again, this ability can be honed and perfected. Not every elder is going to be able to teach every aspect of theology or even heard of all of it. This is in part why seminaries exist. However, it is often in that attempt to hone and perfect that someone's call to ministry is revealed to be no call at all. And that's okay. Well, let's stop there. But before we close, I want to remind you that I used a computer for 10 years and recently bought one on Cyber Monday, and it came on Thursday. Here's the box. And aside from some cardboard padding and an owner's manual, what is in the box now is exactly what was in the box when I received it. Take a listen. On the outside, it's a Lenovo box. It's got the UPS Lenovo packing list in it. It's got my name on it. It's got the name of the computer on it. And what was in it was a G.I. Joe Lego set (laughs) and a phone vent mount. And the best part of it is whoever stole the computer during shipment, it's clearly the bottom had been ripped open and re-glued, is that on these, there are little stickers so let's say 199 and 299 because he got this at some sort of discount store. He couldn't he didn't even have the respect to buy me, you know, a Target Lego set when he stole my computer. Don't worry, Lenovo's taking care of it and is going to replace it. Apparently this happens more often than not. But again, from the outside, it looked like a computer there are people, and many of you have, been, have sat under them and been led by them. They may look like elders on the outside. They have a title. They may even have an office with the title pastor or elder on the door. You even look through this. Yes, he's able to teach. Very good. Faithfully married to the same person for 20, 30 years, never gets angry, life is organized, and from the outside, everything looks a okay But on the inside, you get a discount version of a junky phone mount. It's not the real deal. It is so important that we pray for, that we seek, and if you are seeking the office that you yourself, Don't just look at this list and say, I want to be like this according to the estimation of those who see me on a Sunday morning, but that this flows out of your heart, out of your love for God and a love for His church. Because then and only then will you truly be or recognize that you are indeed God's man for the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your kindness to us, that despite the experience of many in this room, even my own, despite the sad state of affairs in our country and across the globe, you have raised up godly churches that are biblical churches because they are led and shepherded by godly qualified men. I pray that you would raise up more in this church, that you would refine, that you would mold, that you would instruct and train. I pray that you would give me wisdom as we embark on this elder training in the months to come, that you would convict those who you have called to be elder but are afraid. Don't want to sound arrogant by asking, or whatever it may be, but they have been called by you that they would step up, speak up, for you have made them God's man for the church. Continue to refine the elders and leaders here, and as all of these qualifications pertain to all believers, will you continue to help them, all of us, to be convicted of our faithfulness to purity in our marriages and our thought life, whether we're married or single, to be temperate, to be prudent, to be respectable, to be above reproach in all of those. And now as we prepare our hearts for worship through communion, may you guide us so that we would take the proper steps so that we can take it in a worthy manner. In Jesus' name.